Welcome to Bible Insights with Wayne Conrad. God's Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Today's topic, identifying the community of Christ. The Bible gives us some identity features, some markers of those who belong to God. In the New Testament, this community of faith is centered around the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is called his church. Or the word in Greek is ekklesia, which means his assembly. Now, this is very important in our day of individualism. And we often think about everything that Christ does is something he does, you know, specifically for us. So we have our idea so fixed on the self as the center of everything. But God presents it as the community in which his affections are set. Now, obviously, that means he embraces you as an individual who believes in him and trusts in his son, and you're united to his son, but you're not united to his son in isolation from the other members of the community of faith. This is why it's so important that individual believers in Christ, that is, Christians are associated with particular assemblies of Christians. It's become popular in our day to approach Christianity as sort of a shop around church experience and find out the one that you like or the one that you think meets your felt needs. I tell you, that's strictly not a biblical concept of how we should relate to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord comes to us with his saving gospel, and he incorporates us into the body of Christ through the action of the Holy Spirit. We are regenerated. We are born again into the kingdom of God, but we are not born in isolation. Salvation is not just an individualistic experience. It's not just Jesus and me on the Jericho Road. It's Jesus and his people, Jesus and his disciples, Jesus and his group, his community that's on the road. Listen to the words of Peter. He writes in his first epistle, and he's talking to a community of Christians. Here's how he defines it. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And this you is a plural you. He's writing to groups of Christians that live in these particular areas. Now, it could be that there are a number of Jews who've come to believe in the Messiah, Jesus. That could be the focus of his, of his epistle. Or it could be the Gentile and the believing Jews who are together in a community of faith. But the emphasis in Peter may be that the ones who were already Jews who've come to faith in Christ should understand something very significant about this body, about this community of faith in which they are all associated. Anyway, 
Peter writes his epistle, and this is what he says in his, what we call his second chapter. Obviously, his letter did not have chapters or verses. It had paragraphs, I'm sure. But this is what he writes in what we call 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. As you, and again, the you is a plural you. As you come to him, that is to Jesus Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That is, that Jesus of Nazareth was the elect of God. He is the beloved son who is also the servant of Yahweh who comes to execute the will of Yahweh in the saving of a people for God's sake and the glory of his name. But as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen, or that is elect and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now notice, he is describing the people of God as a spiritual house. There's living stones. Now, a house is not made of one stone. One stone does not make a house. It takes many stones in association together to make a house or to build a temple, a holy dwelling place. Now, Ephesians also talks about this reality. Paul in Ephesians 2 speaks about the church being a temple for the dwelling of God. For through him, that is through Jesus Christ, we both, that is Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So Peter and Paul are agreed, and they're both talking about this reality. So what is the identity of this community that God is building in the earth, this spiritual house, this temple for his dwelling place? And Peter goes on to say, you're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now, again, it's not just a holy priest all you're by yourself. It's a priesthood. It belongs to the community. It's upon this passage and a few others that the Protestant concept of the priesthood of believers is, is built. Notice it's not the priesthood of the believer individual, but the priesthood of believers. That is, together we function as priests in this spiritual house or this spiritual temple of God. And what do priests do? Well, they present sacrifices. Now, in the Old Testament, or the first covenant, they presented sacrifices of animals and also of grain to God. The animals were slaughtered, their blood poured out, and they fed up on the flesh of some of those animals. Some were burnt totally up in what's known as a burnt offering. They offered up these sacrifices, but we do not do that in the new covenant community. Why? Because Jesus Christ fulfilled all of these types. So he has made the one all-sufficient 
sacrifice for the sins of his people. He did that on the cross of Calvary. His resurrection and ascension is verification and validation that he has done that. And so we approach God through Jesus Christ, the only mediator between humans and God but being constituted a holy priesthood in relationship to Jesus Christ, we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, there are other passages of Scripture that talk about what these sacrifices are, but in general, they are sacrifices of thanksgiving. And those thanksgivings can make the form of testimonies, those thanksgivings can take the form of contributions, and those Thanksgivings can take the form of prayers, of praises, of our lips giving praise to God. These are the sacrifices of praise and also the sacrifice of our bodies yielded to God as being instruments for the accomplishment of his purposes and his will. That's talked about in Romans chapter um, chapter 12 and verse 1. But Peter writes this concerning the community of faith. He identifies them with about five different titles, five different realities. He says, but you, again, he's talking in the plural, but you are a chosen race, a group of people, a particular group of people marked by certain characteristics. We're a chosen race. It's a race that's associated to God through and in Jesus Christ. And we are a royal priesthood. Now notice there's a combination here of two things that are very distinct in the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, you had the office of the king and you had the office of the prophet. You had the office of the priest. Now often prophets are not what we necessarily would call offices, but they were independent of the king or of the priest, though a prophet could obviously, a priest could prophesy, a king could prophesy, but specifically the kingship and the priesthood were always separate. In fact, if you tried to mix them in the old covenant, you'd get in serious trouble. In fact, one king decided to disregard the law of God and burst into the Holy of Holies and God struck him with leprosy. And he was that way for quite some time until he died. In fact, he had to be kept away from the people. And yet he was one of the good kings of Judah. So even a good person in association with God can break holy laws that should not be broken and can suffer a penalty. But here, you are a chosen race that is a group of people. You are a royal priesthood. Now, we're a royal priesthood in Jesus Christ. Because see, in Jesus, in the person of Jesus, the prophet, priest, And kingly roles in the old covenant that were assigned to different people are all culminated in him. He is our chief prophet. He is the final prophet. He is our great high priest and he is our king. He is the king of the kingdom of God. And so we, as believers in Christ, share in a royal priesthood. And the epistle that John writes what we call the Apocalypse or the book of Revelation, opens with these wonderful words concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and concerning his people. We read in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6, To him 
who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so God's people, his community, are a royal priesthood, and they are a holy nation. Now, notice this this harkens back to the Exodus story. In fact, there are two Exodus stories in the Old Testament. The first is the Exodus story that we're most familiar with because it's the one with the dramatic episodes of the plagues upon Egypt where the Hebrew slaves have been in subjection to slavery for a, a few hundred years. And God delivered them with a mighty hand under Moses and he led them forth into the wilderness and he met them at Mount Sinai and there he constituted them a holy nation. But it's sort of a conditional constitution in Exodus 19. But it's viewed to be a reality because they have been taken out of the nations of the earth and have been made special to God because they are the recipients of his revelation. And this is made very plain to us in a passage found in Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God specifies to them that it was not because they were the best people on earth or the greatest number or the mightiest or the wisest. In fact, they were none of the above. God chose them because he chose to love them and because he was keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that's to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to bring a people back into the land that he had promised to Abraham and to build them a great nation from whom would come great kings. And he fulfilled this in the days of David and Solomon. But yet that nation, because of their breaking the covenant with God, were led into exile. First, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken away by the Assyrians and they never returned. They were scattered to the nations. And then Judah was taken into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And then a decree came forth that they could go back to their land and they could rebuild their land and rebuild the temple. This is the second exodus that's spoken about in some prophetic terms in the prophecies, let's say, of Isaiah and Jeremiah or Ezekiel that are mentioned either directly or alluded to. This is another exodus. But here comes the great exodus, and that's when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, who is a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, those who came back to Israel after the Babylonian captivity were a remnant. But as we go through the names about this people of God, I want to tell you a little bit of story about that. Peter goes on, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That is a group of people that are been associated together in a community with God as their head. Okay? You are a people for God's own possession. That is, you're God's people. You belong to God. You're his possession. Now, we, we testify to this in the waters of baptism. We testify to this when we are united with Christ through faith that's then enacted in the act of water baptism by immersion in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit in which we are united with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We are God's people. We belong to him. And the purpose 
is that we might declare his excellencies and his glories and that we might be light, reflecting the light of Christ himself in this dark world. But notice verse 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Once you were not a people, but now you are a God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you go back to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2 opens up with this dark description of people. And there are the Gentiles that Paul's writing to, but they also embrace the Israelites or the Jews because it's true of all mankind until we come to faith in God personally through his son, the only mediator. We are in darkness. We are without life. We are cut off from the knowledge of God. We are in sin and death and in darkness. Now that this happened even in the old covenant days to Israel. And that points you to the prophecy of Hosea. Hosea chapter 1. It's quite a story. Hosea was this prophet that God told him to go and marry a harlot. To marry a woman of the streets. A prostitute. And Hosea, in obedience to God, goes and he marries Gomer. And she begins to bear him children. But she's an unfaithful wife who finds a lover or lovers on the side. And ultimately, she leaves Hosea for the lover. And he has to buy her back from the marketplace because she's ultimately sold into slavery. That's how the story unfolds. And Hosea in obedience to God, does that which God told him to do. But the children bear prophetic names. And the first two names are names associated with God's action on behalf of Israel. God shows mercy, for instance. But the third child is called Lo Amini, Lo Amini meaning not my people, not my son, not my child. That's how God was regarding the Jews who were breaking his covenant. They were just like the Gentiles. They were lost. They were without the knowledge of God. They were not in the knowledge of the true God. And in fact, this is why God banished them from the land. And we write in Hosea, it's very interesting that in these opening words, God pronounces this judgment on them, and he says, You are not my people. You were once my people, but now you are not my people. Once I showed you mercy, but now no mercy. But this is what he goes on to say. Hosea 1, chapter chapter 1, verse 9. And Yahweh said, call his name, not my people. This is the third child. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Do you hear this? That's his ultimate divorce and disowning of Israel, of Judah, God saying, you're no longer my people. But yet God cannot bear the thought of this because he has chosen Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the patriarchs, and he has promised to bring a people from them that will be his own possession. And so he goes on to say in verse 10, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Now, this is exactly where Peter's coming from when he writes these words 
in 1 Peter chapter 2 in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. But there's another truth that's also related about this community. It's a community not of Jews, not a community of Greeks, not a community of Americans. It's a community international of people from every language and nation and tribe and people who belong to God through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we belong to God. But remember this, you and I do not belong to God in isolation. We belong to God in the community of the people of God. Now, that doesn't function on some kind of spiritual presence, some kind of ghostly presence where we say, oh, well, I'm one of the church, but I never meet with the church. Oh, I believe in worshiping God, but I never worship with God's people. Look, if you're this kind of a Christian, I don't know if biblically you have any justification for that name or for that title because God's people belong to him and they belong to one another. And the invisible becomes visible in the communities, local communities of faith that meet in certain locations at certain times on certain days for the express purpose of offering to God our prayers and listening to his word read and preached and where we offer up our thanksgivings to God, where we intercede for one another and where we acknowledge and profess our faith in him. This is called the assemblies. This is called local church. This is called the communities of faith. It's to them that Peter writes. It's to them that Paul has referenced. And it's to you. If you, as a living stone, are being built up into a spiritual temple for the praises of God and the inhabitation of his spirit. This is the community. This is the people of God. What a glorious calling. What a fantastic identity belongs to us who belong to Christ. And because we belong to him, we belong to one another, one family, a family that meets together, that shares together, that loves together. This has been Wayne Conrad with Bible Insights.